The last two weeks, we talked about the question of truth and how Christians ought to think about politics, and those were more um, broadly philosophical or external concerns. But starting today, uh, the next three classes, we're going to turn toward issues that directly concern the human person. So today, we're going to talk about human sexuality. Next week, we'll talk about gender roles both in the church leadership and in the home. And then, um, as a side note, today we're talking about sexuality, but there is some overlap with gender that we'll discuss. Um, But today we'll talk more about the nature of gender, and next week will be more the social roles of gender. Um, And then we'll take a break, March 6th. We won't have class. We have leadership community. And then we'll start again on March 13th, um, and we'll discuss issues of race and ethnicity. Um, So today, um, as we start this little trilogy, what we're really getting into is what theologians call theological anthropology. So anthropology is the study of man. Those were my favorite classes at Wichita State. I actually started out as an anthropology major. And then I switched. That only lasted a semester. But uh, So you might start taking classes like biological anthropology, which would talk about human origins from an evolutionary perspective or something. Or you take the fun classes like cultural anthropology, where you're looking at cultural variations across the globe. And so anthropology can also be more philosophical in asking about what is the nature of the human person? What is it? to be human. So theological anthropology is basically the theological understanding of the human person. What does God say about humanity? A great uh, psalm that really encompasses the project of theological anthropology is Psalm 8, uh, where the psalmist says, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? So theological anthropology would argue that human persons can only be fully understood in light of our relation to God. We, as humans, are created in God's image. And so the Bible gives us this narrative of creation, fall, redemption, to future glory with God in heaven. And so we can't fully understand our humanity apart from that created reality those theological realities. So what are the theological categories that fall under theological anthropology? Well, they would be creation, uh, the image of God, matters of gender and sexuality, the material and the immaterial aspect of our being, where body-soul unities or body-soul hybrids, uh, the nature of personhood, Uh, our social relationships, race, ethnicity, all of those issues fall under this broad umbrella that's called theological anthropology. So it's obvious, you can see many of the controversial issues in society today actually fall under this category. Uh, Gender dysphoria, transgenderism, sexuality, transhumanism, uh, body image issues, body modification, eating disorders, uh, all of these really... Um, hands-on, tactile issues that we can get a hold of fall under this 
area. And there's a lot of confusion in our culture today regarding those issues. And there's confusion in the church. And so here I think it's important to say uh, that when we think of the phrase theological anthropology, the order of those words matters. So we don't want an anthropological theology. We want a theological anthropology. So we don't want a man-centered understanding of man. We want to start with God. We want to be God-centered. And that can be misconstrued. So to say that we want to be God-centered doesn't mean that we diminish the value of the human person. Of course not. But in order to think rightly about the human person, we have to start with God. And we need clarity from God on these issues. And thankfully, God has spoken clearly through his word. And so that sets up the framework for us over the next few weeks. What does God say about the human person? So here's how I'm going to approach this talk this afternoon. Uh, First, I'm going to talk about gender, maleness and femaleness, as um, that is fundamental to our understanding of sexuality. And then we'll discuss sexuality. And I think it's important to frame the discussion in terms of what God is for when it comes to human sexuality. Uh, When we understand what sexuality is for, then we can see that, you know, God's prohibitions on certain expressions of sexuality are not arbitrary, but they actually serve to protect what God is for. So let's start with gender. There's a lot of confusion. I don't need to tell you that today in our culture over gender. Is gender a binary, a male-female binary, or does it exist on this spectrum? And I, I don't bring this up to make fun of this, uh, but as you know, in Facebook in 2014 released this list of uh, 56 genders that you could select from in your profile. Now I think it's up to 74. Um, I won't read all of these, but odd gender, bigender, cisgender, uh, intersex, and the list goes on. Um, there's also a, a customizable option as well. Um, there's also social peer pressure to be identified by your personal pronouns. So I've seen this in subtle ways, whether it's somebody wearing a name tag at a coffee shop with their pronoun or in an email signature block. Uh, last year, I, went, I virtually went to the National Mentoring Summit, and most people had their Zoom name, and in parentheses, it had their name and then their preferred pronouns. And this is my opinion, but as a matter of pastoral advice, uh, I would caution against adopting that practice. I think some might say, you know, well, this is just showing that I'm sensitive to these concerns. What's the big deal? But I think it does tacitly give approval to the underlying worldview, which is directly opposed to God's created order. So the most uh, vivid example of this pronoun issue uh, that I've come across was in an ESPN cover story of the WNBA's first, this is their language, first openly non-binary and transgender player. Uh, Let me read the uh, editor's note at the beginning of the article. 
Editor's note, Lacia Clarendon, who identifies as transgender and non-binary, uses he, him, she, her, and they, them pronouns interchangeably. We do so throughout this piece. We also introduce preferred pronouns for others who appear in the story and for whom pronouns are used. Um, and again, I don't bring this article up to make fun of it, but the article was nearly incomprehensible to read. Even in the first paragraph, uh, it changes multiple times. And that's the intent. It's a deliberate uh, political move to destabilize this cultural norm, to destabilize God's created order. So, is gender a biological reality like sex, or is it a social construction? And so, when we're dealing, what we're dealing with with this issue really comes down to two competing views about gender. So there's a binary for you. It comes down to uh, gender essentialism or gender constructionism. And I'll uh, define what both of these views are, uh, neither of which fully fits into the biblical view of gender. Um, but first, let me outline these two views, and then we'll get into the biblical understanding. So, some definitions. Uh, gender essentialism. Gender essentialism is the view that men and women are fundamentally, and that's a key word, fundamentally different. A popular version of this um, book, I think, was called Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. Uh, that there are certain qualities and characteristics that belong exclusively to men and exclusively to women. So basically, uh, gendered stereotypes are seen as essential to what it means to be a man or a woman. So men solve problems, women want to talk about their feelings. Um, there are numerous scientific studies that affirm biological, real biological psychological and physiological differences between men and women. But one of the flaws with gender essentialism is that the environment and culture, to a degree, does shape gendered expectations and cultural norms. And that reality has led some people to embrace what's called gender constructionism. So gender constructionism is the view that separates biological sex from gender and views gender as a mere social performance or conformity to societal expectations. So Carl Truman describes this constructionist view of reality and he would say that we are now plastic people in the sense that we can uh, create ourselves into whoever we want to be. We are an autonomous individual and any meaningful social categories then are destabilized, and it becomes all about power dynamics. Now, Judith Butler is a, a feminist thinker who holds to this view of gender constructionism. And according to her, gender is a pure performance. And so she speaks of this idea that gender is not being, it's doing. So it's what you do in society. And so she would argue that uh, for people like me who affirm a gender binary, she would say that's really just a way for those people to maintain the power of 
heteronormativity. So that's some postmodern gobbledygook, but uh, here's, here's the translation into English. But heteronormativity is this idea that heterosexuality is the normative majority experience of society. And so Butler would say to affirm a gendered binary really is just a way to hold on to your power and to continue to marginalize minority sexual expressions and sexual identities. Another feminist thinker, her name is uh, Simone de Beauvoir, and she holds to this constructionist view of gender. And the opening sentence of one of her books says, one is not born, but rather becomes woman. One is not born, but becomes woman. So there's a clear separation between gender and sex. And so now you, you hear um, stories of people using language like people with cervixes or pregnant people, what we would traditionally call pregnant women. And if you're in the least bit critical of that view, uh, like J.K. Rowling, for instance, who's not in the least conservative, uh, then you get you know, disinvited to the 20th anniversary of Harry Potter. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot more at stake than getting disinvited to a party. But, so on that gender constructionism view, we should ask, what is the significance of the body? Because on that view, the body is meaningless. Maleness and femaleness has nothing to do with our body, but it's purely a psychological phenomenon. And there, I think, is the sad irony behind transgenderism. Because if the body is meaningless when it comes to what it means to be a man or a woman, then why is it necessary to undergo body modifications to bring your body into congruity with your preferred gender? And so there's even been a shift in language from them calling it uh, sex reassignment surgery to gender alignment surgery. As Christians, we believe that our bodies are of immense importance to our faith. And we don't give a lot of theological thought to the significance of our bodies. And I think that's one of the strange paradoxes of our society. We're simultaneously body-obsessed, but we're also body amnesiacs. We forget about the significance of our body and we disregard it. So, for further reading, uh, for those of you who are interested, these are just four books uh, that I've read that I would recommend um, if you're interested in learning more about the theological significance of the body. Um, and each of these are from a, a different, they're all conservative theologically, uh, but they're all from different denominational uh, traditions. So Embodied by Greg Allison, he's a Baptist. Um, Wonderfully Made is uh, another uh, really great, fantastic book by John Kleinig. I think he's a Lutheran. For the Body, Timothy Tennant. He's a uh, Methodist. And, um, and then The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman. He's writing as a uh, Presbyterian. So if you're interested, you can read those. Or if you don't want to read a book, what I do a lot of times, you can... Uh, 
get on YouTube and find an interview with these authors talking about their books, and usually you get all that you need. <laughs> they talk about the main ideas. So uh, that's there for, for your own edification. So what, what's the biblical assessment of those two views, gender essentialism or gender constructionism? What's the biblical understanding of gender? Well, what I'm going to articulate here really comes from uh, Greg Allison's book, Embodied. And uh, uh, full disclosure, he's also my advisor, so um, he has a lot of influence on the way I think about this. Um, but the, the Bible <clears throat> affirms gender as a fundamental aspect of our embodiment. God has created us as gendered beings, either male or female. And so I would take the traditional view to see gender as being synonymous with sex, biological sex. So Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So what's important there is that both males and females are both equally made in the image of God. And God created woman to be the suitable helper to fulfill the creation mandate, to be fruitful and multiply and to subdue the earth, to engage in, in building society together. And as many theologians have recognized, that, that male-female binary in the opening chapters of Genesis follows the pattern of other binaries in the creation narrative. So uh, God creates something out of nothing, there's a distinction between the creator and the creature, heaven and earth, light and darkness, day and night, the waters above, the waters below. God separates the dry land from the waters. And so there's this whole pattern of these binaries in the creation narrative, and then the crowning achievement of God's creative work when he creates humanity is that separation of creating man as male and female. So it fits right in line with that pattern in creation. And so because embodiment is fundamental to our existence, and embodiment is either male or female, then our maleness and our femaleness shapes how we see and live in the world. Now Greg Allison, he would say this might sound like gender essentialism, but it's not. It, uh, it diverges from gender essentialism in a couple ways. Uh, so, as I said, gender essentialism would say that there are certain qualities or characteristics that belong exclusively to men or exclusively to women. And Allison's view is that instead, there are common human traits that are expressed in gendered ways. So, here's a real-life example of this from my time at Wichita State. Uh, to help you understand what Allison means. Uh, I was in a men and masculinities class, and really it, it was all about abolishing the patriarchy and toxic masculinity and things like that. And we have this uh, class discussion about uh, masculine and feminine traits, and I think it was about gentleness as being a feminine characteristic. And so it was argued that men who display gentleness are expressing femininity. But I raise the point that gentleness is not a feminine or a masculine quality. Both men and women 
express gentleness. And I, I didn't use his name, but I, I talked about how at the time I was meeting with Kevin Neuenswander weekly. And I said, you know, I meet with one of my mentors who's one of the most gentle men I know. <laughs> and we say things like, I love you. <laughs> Gasp. You know, uh, uh, and I said, he's not expressing femininity. He's expressing a basic human characteristic. He's actually expressing a, a Christian virtue, the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So none of those personality uh, characteristics or none of those virtues belong exclusively to men or to women, but they might be expressed in a gendered way. They might be expressed differently. So we should rightly reject uh, gendered stereotypes of masculinity and femininity. And one of the ironies, again, of the transgenderism movement, in my opinion, is that it reinforces gendered stereotypes. So if you're a girl who doesn't like playing with dolls, maybe that means you're supposed to be a boy. Um, no, maybe it means you're a girl who doesn't like playing with dolls. And that's okay. And so here, I think it's where uh, the church as a community can really help people who are struggling to understand where they fit in. That it's okay if you don't fit into this gendered stereotype. And then we do the task of helping them be comfortable in their bodies as God has uniquely made them. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. So we're going to move on to sexuality now. And uh, just as gender is a fundamental given of human existence, so is sexuality. We are sexual beings. But we have to be careful there when we say that sexuality is essential to our existence. So Mark Cortez is a theologian who says, Sexuality is an essential aspect of our humanity. But that doesn't mean particular expressions of sexuality are natural or essential. So because uh, if, if you say that, then you could easily believe that something sinful is essential to your humanity. So that's problematic. Uh, but we should first ask, what is sexuality for? And again, I think, uh, you know, quite honestly, I was struggling when I was uh, writing this class because I, I didn't know how to approach this topic. And I think uh, you can easily frame this discussion with all the various types of sexual expression that's, that are wrong. Uh, but I think that fails to see the larger purpose of what sexuality is for. And ultimately, this might seem strange, but sex points to our union with God. And here's why. Sex is designed by God to take place within the context of marriage, a lifelong monogamous union between a man and woman. So sex is designed to take place in that context. And ultimately, that institution, marriage, is designed to point to that union between Christ and his bride, the church. 
And so the storyline of the Bible begins and ends with a wedding. It begins with a wedding in the garden, with the one flesh union of Adam and Eve, and it ends with the marriage supper of the Lamb in heaven. And so marriage and sex is God's idea. We don't get to tinker with it. God has designed it that way because he knows what's best. And we might ask, you know, but why has God designed sex to only take place within the context of marriage? And here I'm, I'm going to represent some of the material I presented at the marriage conference. Uh, so if you've already heard this, I'm sorry, but <laughs> I'm going to revisit it. And um, for those of you who weren't there, you get to hear it. Um, but one of the things that I said at the marriage conference is that marriage is for union and intimacy. So in that book, Wonderfully Made, John Kleinig uses a wonderful phrase that he calls the garden of nuptial love. And nuptial is an old word that means marriage. And so he speaks about the, the old traditional language of marriage as an estate. So marriage was a safe place for the sexual union to be protected and nurtured and to thrive. And so there's your answer to the question, why is sex only for marriage? Well, because ideally it's a safe place for that sexual union to grow and to flourish, to be nourished and cherished and cultivated. And sex is is enormously powerful. It affects the whole person, which is why it's so dangerous and destructive apart from God's design. It affects all of our senses. And so, as Kleinig says, this garden of love is a place where the husband and wife can come together with their whole being and give themselves to each other in self-giving love. And so it's, it's physical, but it's much more than simply physical. It's emotional and spiritual. And so marriages also pursue chastity. And chastity is not just associated with virginity. It's much more than that, or sexual abstinence. Chastity is this holistic, whole-person sexual purity, reserving yourself fully and faithfully for the other person. So chastity is not just for the unmarried. It's about a pure heart governed by love rather than a heart dominated by lust or the pursuit of personal pleasure. So sex is pleasurable, but pleasure is not the sole purpose. And when pleasure is sought as the sole purpose, then it becomes degrading and objectifying. So marriage is this garden of love, fenced off and protected in order that the couple's union may grow and flourish. Another feature of sex, God's design for sex, no surprise here, is that it leads to children. And it's very clear that having children is natural to the institution of marriage. God has given us the creation mandate to be fruitful and to multiply. And and God's design for this is that having children would only take place within this context of marriage because marriage is the best nurturing, stable environment for children. Marriage is what's best for children. Um, Psalm 127 says that children are a blessing or a heritage from the Lord. Uh, we live in a society that speaks of children like they're an inconvenience or a hindrance to your own personal and professional goals. 
children are impediments to your career aspirations. And the Christian worldview, the biblical worldview, must reject that kind of language, that, those kinds of thoughts. Children are a gift from the Lord. Even in circumstances when they're not ideal, we can trust God that his grace is sufficient to sustain us with what we need. Another aspect of sex in marriage is that it's temporary. When we die, the marriage bond dissolves. That's the biblical reality, and it's a good thing. Jesus said in Matthew, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they're like the angels in heaven. And that might sound like a diminishment, but it's not. Uh, Whatever it is, it's going to be better in heaven. And so that, that biblical survey of marriage answers the question of why there's no marriage in heaven, because ultimately the marriage union points to our union with Christ. And so here we should say that singleness is normal. John Kleinig again, he says, the single life is not at all abnormal and uncommon. It's quite normal and common. All married people were single before they were married. Half of them will once again be single after the death of their spouse. So to be single is not to be less than human. Singleness and marriage are gifts from God. And single people and married people can both enrich the lives of each other. That's what it means to be one body in the church. And so our culture, we live in a hypersexualized culture that says uh, sexual expression is essential to our humanity. Not sexuality is essential to our humanity, but sexual expression is essential to our humanity. Uh, But as some of you might be familiar with Sam Alberry, he's a a writer with the Gospel Coalition. He helpfully points out that if we were to say that sexual expression is essential to what it means to be human, that would mean that we're saying Jesus is not fully human because he didn't have sex. So Jesus was a sexual being. He was an embodied male. But his humanity didn't depend on his sexual activity. And so what I presented there really is a positive vision for human sexuality. And you see it's, it's God's beautiful design, and it's for our good, for our flourishing. And when we stray from God's design, we do great harm to ourselves and others. And Christians can, uh, maybe sometimes rightfully so, get a bad rap regarding sexuality. Uh, We can get characterized as a bunch of Puritans who are obsessed with repressing sexual deviance. Uh, But really, that's not our concern. Our concern is that we want what God says is best. And God's best is for our good. And so then, with all of that in mind, it becomes clear why God's prohibitions against certain sexual activity, say homosexual activity, or any other deviant sexual practice, is not an arbitrary thing. God's commands are for our good and for our flourishing. And so while I want to focus on what we're for, uh, I think I would be remiss if I didn't address 
homosexuality at all uh, because of its prevalence in society. And I'm not even going to be able to scratch the surface of all that could be said here. Um, I'm not going to get into the various exegetical arguments for or against it in the Bible. But what I want to do is simply address the question of how do we deal with this question, this issue in our church here. Uh, But for those of you who are interested in the exegetical arguments, um, I'm not going to recommend a book. I'll recommend a video. You can find it on YouTube um, by a guy named Robert Dagnan. Uh, He's probably the foremost New Testament scholar from a conservative point of view on New Testament sexual ethics. Uh, The video is long. It's like an hour and a half. Um, But he goes through every main exegetical argument that uh, people make of uh, God's supposed support of homosexuality. Um, And he he presents... uh, the conservative uh, interpretation. So if, if you're interested in that, um, I'd recommend it. It's called The Bible and Homosexuality, Interpreting the Scriptures. Um, I, will, I said I wasn't going to do this, but I, I wrote this in the margins of my notes. I will get into one, one common um, argument that people make, um, people who say God supports homosexual unions or, or homosexual lifestyles, is what's called the silence of the lamb. That's what Gagnon calls it. So Jesus was silent on the matter in Scripture. So that must mean that he was supportive of it. And uh, I think what Gagnon really helpfully shows is that uh, Jesus, especially in moral um, concerns, raises the bar. So when he goes through um, the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you've heard it said but I say this, so with issues like murder or adultery, um, Jesus heightens the standard. So it's, you know, uh, you've heard it said that you shall not commit murder, but I say if you're angry with a brother in your heart, you've committed murder. So Jesus is raising the standard. So it's, um, it's illogical to think that Jesus was, Uh, because he was silent on this issue, that he would have had a more liberal or lax view of that issue. His silence was simply a matter of um, him uh, supposing um, its existence. So, um, also, I think there's some phenomenal material out there um, on the Gospel Coalition that addresses this issue, Videos, podcasts, blogs, um, writers, as I mentioned, Sam Alberry, Rosaria Butterfield, Rebecca McLaughlin, all of whom have this issue as a part of their story. And what I appreciate about their stories and their writing is that they help us see that uh, this is not just an issue out there, but it's in here. It's a sense that... um, as, as we talk about it openly in the church, then that can actually help us think biblically about it. And then we're actually ba- better a- able to help people who might experience same-sex attraction walk with Jesus faithfully. So, you know, I've just used what some would consider a, a loaded term. Uh, I've used the word or the phrase same-sex attraction versus 
homosexuality. So why did I do that? Homosexuality, as the word is used now, carries with it a sense of a, a comprehensive identity. And so, biblically, uh, the word homosexuality is not used, um, but really it's what it's um, prohibiting is homosexual practice. Not necessarily what we would call same-sex desire. So, but I do think that the desire, same-sex desire, is the result of living in a fallen world. So, there's a debate going on in Christian circles over the language we use here. Some use the term gay Christian uh, to mean that their church is open and affirming, welcoming of homosexual identity and expression, uh, that indeed God blesses such unions and lifestyles. Others might use the term gay Christian, uh, but they would hold to a traditional uh, understanding of New Testament sexual ethics. Uh, so for them... They, they would mean God has called them to be celibate, uh, but their homosexual desires are not central to their identity. And then others use the term same-sex attraction to denote their experience of those desires. And those experiences, they would say, are not central to their personal identity or their lifestyle. So again, as a matter of personal pastoral advice, um, I would caution against using the label gay Christian, even if by that you mean you believe in the historic Christian understanding of sexuality. Uh, one reason simply being it's confusing to people, especially non-Christians. Uh, and then a second reason is that you have now made a practice that is sinful central to your identity. And so... Uh, that can be problematic in your pursuit of holiness. And that's very important um, with this issue to keep in mind. The goal for the Christian who experiences same-sex attraction or same-sex desire is not to become heterosexual, but the goal is to pursue holiness and Christ-likeness. And in my view, when you adopt that label, gay Christian, then that can become a stumbling block in your pursuit of holiness. And also, uh, in this discussion, I think we need to be wise and cautious with our use of the language of welcome and inclusion. So often we hear in the church, or we hear that the church should be welcoming toward those who experience same-sex attraction. And by that, they mean wholesale affirmation of the practice. So we should ask, what do you mean by that when you say welcome? Uh, so we can't do that and remain biblically faithful, but that doesn't mean we're not a welcoming community. So as Christians seeking to love God and love others, surely we can welcome those into our community who struggle, and as we befriend them, as we listen as we walk faithfully beside them, we do so and we're not going to compromise on biblical fidelity to New Testament sexual ethics. And you know, you, you also shouldn't enter a community and expect them to change their central beliefs and practices to accommodate your, um, your beliefs. 
So our goal, as I said, is to help people faithfully walk with Jesus. And we're to help them see that Jesus knows our sin and our shame. He knows our every weakness. And too often, people who experience same-sex attraction feel that they, they must suffer in silence uh, because of this immense perceived shame that they feel would come from their community. Uh, but we, we must help them see that Jesus himself identifies with our shame. Jesus hung naked on a cross. That was the most shameful way to die. So Jesus knows what it's like to feel shame. Uh, But Jesus also gives us hope. And he promises that he'll be with us. And Jesus does work to transform us and he restores us to wholeness.